This episode of Table Talk is sponsored by J Food O, dedicated to sharing the best Japan has to offer. Over the next few months, J Food O and a selection of London restaurants will create seafood and sake pairings for spectator listeners to help develop your knowledge and enjoyment of the drink. The pairing will focus on the concept of umami, which in Japanese means the essence of deliciousness. Hello and welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Olivia Potts. And I'm Lara Prendergast. And today we're delighted to be joined by Ed Smith. Ed is an award-winning food writer, and after a career in law, he retrains the chef and began his acclaimed blog, Rocket and Squash. He's been shortlisted for numerous awards and won the Fortnum and Mason Best Online Restaurant Writer in 2015. He published his first cookbook, On the Side, in 2017, and the Borough Market Cookbook followed shortly afterwards. His latest book, Crave, Recipes Arranged by Flavour to Suit Your Mood and Appetite, will be published at the end of May. Ed, welcome to the podcast. Hi there, thanks for having me. Ed, as listeners know, we, we always start this podcast in the same place with a question, what are your earliest memories of food? My earliest memories, I would say it's not quite a sitting on Nonna's knee podding peas moment, but it is to do with helping mum this has probably been said many times, cook a Sunday roast. I'm from Worcestershire. We had a big garden with an orchard and a vegetable patch, although that was generally overgrowing and the apples were, were falling. But Sunday lunch was always something we did. And I learned that if I helped mum make the gravy or help make the pudding, then I basically got out of washing up, which my brothers had to do. <laughs> and what, what were meal times like in your family? So I've got three brothers and we're all pretty closely grouped in age which meant that every meal was a family meal around the dinner table with four boys aggressively claiming that another had had one piece of penne pasta more than the other so mum was incredibly good at portioning and that's probably a talent that I've inherited and was your mum the main cook in your house growing up yeah definitely yeah mum's mum's the cook although I think over time I and my brothers took over much of the... She, she, she won't be happy with me saying it, but we took over plenty of the cooking. Mum, mum went back to work when I was about 10, 11, I think, and we quickly learnt that if we wanted to eat earlier than when mum and dad got home, we had to first put food on that had been pre-made and then gradually we'd start making the food as well. Or, so I think, I think we all, we've all got a healthy interest in food and in cooking. And what, what sorts of dishes was your mum cooking, apart from the roasts? It's pretty pretty standard 1980s home cooking. So there were plenty of spaghetti bolognese, chili con carnes, which is essentially the same dish <laughs> in those times. With, kidney um, beans added. Chili, chili powder put in one and some kidney beans. Cottage pie, again, same base, <laughs> potatoes on top. But so your fam- family meals were, were looking at now as I'm kind of having my own family as well. You can see how... You do things that you can get done ahead or that can be put on to cook while everyone's being marshalled around. But mum was also quite into, I guess, dinner parties. And I think she is an entertainer, so would be always looking to cook a, a meal for her friends that, that would impress or that everyone could talk about. So I think pretty much every dinner party was a different meal from a different recipe of a book. That kind of cook, I would say. And what about at school? What was school food like for you? School food, packed lunches until I was about 13, 
which I didn't love. I think Dad was in charge, actually, of packed lunches, and I was famous for hiding my sandwiches in various parts of the lunchbox or shoes or pockets because I didn't want to eat them. And I don't think that's because I didn't like food. Then when we had school food, it was usual affair. I kind of, I remember really loving puddings, steamed puddings with treacle or jam, jam rolls, that kind of stuff, lots of custard, which weirdly we always got served before sports matches, which I don't think helped the results. (laughs) And after you left school and went to university, you were at Durham. What was student food like? Did you cook much there? Uh, Yeah, so I think probably... And I don't want to say this out of turn, but I think probably unusually for kind of an 18-year-old back in, when was that, 2000, I was really well-versed at cooking for lots of people already at that age, having been, you know, cooking with a family of six for years. So after the first year in halls, you know, it was absolutely no... I don't think I ate like a student. Or the, the classic example of a of a student, I ate, I ate the same food that mum had taught us or I'd basically picked up from watching Ready Steady Cook at the time so I just cooked normal nice food. And were you aware sort of in in that period before you went to university when you were at home and absorbing food knowledge and learning from your mum were you aware of this growing interest in food or was it subconscious how how did it manifest? Definitely I think I think what I touched upon it just there really with Ready Steady Cook which I would sort of happily say was a formative experience of my cooking and um, TV chefs around that time I guess beginning with for me, Delia, and then a bit of River Cottage and Jamie obviously was big when I was fifteen, sixteen, and I think that I'm sure I'm sure that Jamie's programs influenced me of what I wanted to cook and the fact that I like cooking. I used to make tarts from his first book for my parents' friends. Sold a few of those at that age, so I was already into cooking and I knew that I liked it. And I would sneak off to watch food programs. They would be right up there with with any of the programs that I wanted to watch and read the food pages at the back of the Times on a Saturday from as, you know, as long as I remember. So I was aware that I liked food, but it was never it never crossed my mind that it would be a career at that point. I was as good at school, good at university, and I don't think at that point it felt like a kind of industry that that I should jump into. And also it's not one that I had any experience of. My mum was a solicitor, so it was a kind of an obvious move for me when I started thinking about careers at sort of first second year of, of university and and you then became a solicitor what I mean what was what was food like then when you when you first started working as a lawyer well working as a lawyer that was when I first moved to London and that was 2007 and that if you look back at the kind of a timeline of London restaurants is broadly around the time of street food starting up and restaurants becoming the new rock and roll and a much improved restaurant scene and so I was very aware of great restaurants apparently great restaurants reading reviews but I wasn't finding the time to to book them largely because of being a junior lawyer so my my experience of food was was wanting to go to the places that I was telling other people to go to and not having the time and that's really why I started my blog which I did sort of as I qualified as a solicitor and that was as a creative outlet to to go to those restaurants to make me go into I wanted to write about them just because I wanted to do something other than review regulatory papers and um and also to cook something new every weekend because it was definitely something I was aware that that I enjoyed doing but I was finding that I was getting to the weekends absolutely shattered with no plans and being the kind of 
slightly OCD nature that I had and maybe still have, I needed something to be a kind of a ball and chain to, to book those restaurants and to, and to cook that food. And what do you think makes a good restaurant review? Good question. I'm of the opinion that restaurant reviews are not academic papers on, on the food that's in the restaurant. It's a, it's a relatively subjective experience and one that most people that read that review won't experience themselves so there's there's an element of entertainment and intrigue so i think that the the review needs to to be entertaining and to hold hold the interest but also to be based on the opinion of someone who who does have a decent palate who can recommend or or dislike food and explain why that's the case so it's a mix of everything but i do i do like a bit of entertainment thrown in and tell us about the decision to leave law in favour of food? Was it an easy decision, a snap decision? How, how did it come about? So I'd, I'd started this blog, which is, again, I don't know who, who listening will be in, into the, the London blog scene of 2010-11, but um, I was a sort of a secret anonymous blogger. I felt a bit ashamed by having this website on the sly. Certainly didn't tell any of my colleagues. And I, like I said, I did it as a creative outlet with no intention to do anything else. It happened to, to get read, I think, which was exciting and interesting and to see people reading it and responding to it. And I found that I was writing these blog posts at 12 o'clock at night, having got home at 11. And I distinctly remember stopping myself at two o'clock in the morning saying, you know, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you writing about Pierre Kaufman's pop-up on the top of Selfridges when you've got to be back at work in five hours time? Maybe there's an industry that I'd rather work in and it was not because I wanted or thought in particular at that point. I didn't, I didn't specifically know what I wanted to do, but I knew that whatever you do in life, you have to work hard. And so it wasn't that I was necessarily sick of working hard. It's just that I maybe realised that there was a base interest that wasn't being fulfilled in financial disputes and that I should maybe look to to change what I was working Now, what I didn't think I was going to do was become a full-time food writer. Um, I thought I would start some sort of food business. To be totally transparent, I think I thought, oh, look, at Byron's a great example. I'm going to start a, a, a burger chain and, and flip it for, for millions of pounds in four years' time without much work. And it can't be hard to get the salary of, a, of an associate lawyer <laughs> anytime soon. And so, uh, yeah, I thought that, and, or I thought I might start a cookery school... And that's why I then jumped into my sort of safety net, really, was to go to catering college for six months. And that, that for me, the decision was made when I started looking around as to, as to how I could make a move. This is slightly weird for having jumped from a good career to a nebulous and dodgy one, is I, I thought that I could make the risk less by going to catering college. In reality, what I was doing was fudging my decision and probably saying to mum and dad, look, I've got a plan. It, well, it, le- it legitimises it, doesn't it? Because you're not just, you're totally, not just going yeah. off into the ether. You're saying, well, I have term dates and I'll probably have some homework. And it suddenly exactly. fits with the rest of your life. Totally. And I, and I thought that, you know, I thought I was, it was, it was four days a week and I thought I'd be writing my business plan and getting experience on, on the fifth day. And that was all good. It, it was interesting, actually, when I, when I resigned, the partner was, when you, when you resign from a job, you always get that kind of initially hatred and anger you go through the various stages of loss, I think, on the other side, don't you? And, and as soon as I said that I was changing career and, and going to catering college, the sort of the, the change in his demeanour was, was significant and obvious. And I think he said, oh, brilliant, you're following your passion. And I'm not sure I actually was. I think I was, in majority, had probably had enough of, of the work that I was doing and the food 
food was a was a way to go a different a different direction to go and it felt like a an interesting one at the time food 10 years ago was really becoming quite a big and a, and a more legitimate area to move into so yeah kitchen college Kitchen College was my was my crash mat. And tell us about that. How is catering college? Great. I actually, I don't know if anyone who's listening is really interested in this kind of stuff, but there are various institutions, as you know, as to where you might go. And one that I went to, Westminster, is the place that you normally do sort of 16 and 17 year olds go to to spend three years to get a GMVQ or similar. Is it not even GMVQ, but a qualification that helps them sort of be an alternative to high school, mm-hmm. really. But the course I did was a six-month course which crammed all that, essentially the same things into that six months, which they, I think, scrambled really to try and get students largely from Korea to come and pay much bigger course fees. <laughs> they love me for saying this. But actually, in the year that I had, there were only four of us on the course. We had a vague objective every week. And after the first six weeks of the various skills, we basically got a different animal in at the start of the week broke it down and, and cooked various things so that we, that we then ticked off the curriculum mm. throughout the week. So it was an absolutely brilliant experience, essentially one-on-one teaching without the pressure of being in a restaurant, without maybe some of the more formulaic rigour of some of the other some of the other courses. And for me, as at that point, a 30-year-old who wanted to change career but loved food, to, to cook something different every every week in a professional, well, professional kitchen layout with some support mm. but also an ability to to do what you want and at that stage I felt like I was already a pretty good cook so it wasn't necessarily learning how to cook but I was developing new techniques or or understanding a bit more about stuff that I'd been practicing for years. And did you then spend time working in some of London's restaurants? So I did a bit of experience during that time and for about six, six to nine months after working in some trendy places I suppose and a few of the Michelin star bits but only really only to be honest sort of stage type things whilst also running pop-ups of my own I ran like a two-month pop-up in Kensington of all places where we had supper clubs come and host one or two nights a week um, of their own events and I was there as the kind of firefighter and the guy running the kitchen which is really interesting and people like Asma Khan who now runs Darjeeling Express had her first ever pop-ups there Mandy from Sambal Shock which is a great laxa restaurant on Holloway Road lots of people that I still know now working in and the London food scene, I met them, which was great. And you've obviously been sort of witnessing what's happened in London over the last decade or so. What what have been the kind of biggest changes that you've noticed? There was this thing called a, the, the pandemic. Um, <laughs> Apart from that. About a year ago. No, it, it, was, <laughs> it was actually quite interesting because for me, it does that sort of does bookend about 10 years of really being quite interested in, in the London food scene and... 2008 with the financial crisis at that time I was working as a trainee in a structured finance department at my law firm Freshfields and we we acted for the Bank of England as as everything broke down so I sort of saw that and that's interesting because I now can correlate the experience of street food and people sort of coming out of restaurants and doing their own thing at a much younger age than they had traditionally done because finance had gone and because people restaurants were closing and, and opening and, and chefs had an opportunity to sort of break out with the, with the vans and I think that the scene then matured and things that were done that were extremely exciting in 2011 in restaurants I, I did a stage at or I worked with two guys who now have quite famous restaurants one called Lyles and one called the Clove Club they had a pop-up called the Young Turks and that was my first ever restaurant experience for about two months 
from then on, lots of other young chefs started opening restaurants, essentially following this kind of mo- modern British slash Nordic style of cooking. And everything's always you know, hype-driven and new restaurant-driven, and suddenly we get to the COVID pandemic when I think some of that was maturing and maybe had stopped for me being any kind of really interesting places, not any, many really interesting places opening up. And I think what we'll see now with COVID is that, again, there'll be lots of these spaces and lots of young young professionals who maybe have now got an opportunity who've in the last six to nine, 12 months have had their own businesses selling pies or selling borex and, and they're suddenly going to break out of the traditional mould of being a restaurant chef much quicker than they might have done had COVID not happened. And, but actually maybe that's just another decade cycle about to start all over again. Does that make sense? I don't know. I feel like I'm rambling. Yeah, that does make sense. It feels like there is a space now that there wasn't before. And I think when I, I, I wasn't in London or, or in the food scene at that 2008 point, but I followed blogs avidly and I can see in retrospect what you are now describing happening. And I think, I think you're right. There feels like yeah. there is an opportunity for businesses that perhaps have tiny overheads and have been able to experiment during this unprecedented time. Exactly. As we like to continually re- call it. I mean, personally, I really hope that they will succeed. I think there are a lot of yeah. incredibly interesting and, and diverse businesses and business models that have come out of the delivery yeah, we've been living in, I suppose. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, I, I just think there's sort of a new gen. There will be as well as the traditional, the the established restaurants trying to find their feet again, which you know, goodness, that's going to be hard for them all to to do if they've managed to weather the last twelve months. They're essentially starting new restaurants, and we're basically going to have. It's going to feel like every single one of those ten years all rolled into five weeks as every new restaurant essentially tries to reannounce itself, and I think there's lots of appetite not just in London, but everywhere in Britain for to go back to eating in restaurants and to not cook for yourself. So it's a great time to be releasing a cookbook. <laughs> but I think there's lots of appetite for people to do that sort of thing and, and, and goodwill, but presumably only it's going to be hard for everyone to, to get to where they were, I think. Yet at the same time, anyone starting from scratch has got an amazing opportunity. Mm. And tell us about having, having had experience in restaurants, how did you move into recipe writing in particular? So I guess that's because I, I never really left. The, the blog was an amazing experience of finding a voice and learning how to write and to, to learn how to write recipes people might follow and be interested in. I worked in restaurants. I worked with other people. And, there, and I just realised that what I liked the most was being around the best people in the food, whether that's a producer or a customer or the bit, everything else in between. And so I felt like I wanted to document that whilst at the same time writing my own recipes because that's definitely the thing that I've enjoyed the most in this career is, is creating creating recipes and putting that into the shape in particular of books. And I guess it just kind of, I'd never let go of the blog side of things and that gave me opportunities with writing and with with recipe commissions and working with magazines that um sort of gradually gravitated me more towards being a writer than than trying to trying to be a restaurant chef and who are the food writers who you like to read i like writers that set their recipes in the, in, the, in the context that make me want to cook them and that provide a bit of background so i like it feels obvious to say sort of nigel slater simon hopkinson and kind of a more recent ilk um rachel waddy who are all literary in what they do and they and as a result of that i really feel immersed in the food and Often, actually, I'm not necessarily sure I follow their recipes, but everything they, they do sparks a bit of interest or sparks a desire to cook something. They're writers, I guess, that 
that often provide comfort. So my, my book that's coming out has got six flavour profiles in it, two of which I suppose are naturally comfort kind of food, uh, rich and savoury and cheesy and creamy. And and prior to setting in, in, in my own recipes in that space, or even, even doing so, people like Nigel Slater are the kind of people that on a rainy day, on a grey day, or in autumn, when I have a celeriac in front of me, it's kind of like, right, what, what would Nigel do right now? And I think that that's the kind of the kind of writer I look to is someone who has a voice that I trust. I think that leads us on to our ne- one of our questions we always ask, which is what what is comfort food for you? So this is quite interesting because immediately because of so much that we read about comfort, I sort of think of roast chicken, chicken soup, baked beans. But actually, I'm not sure that's right. I think, again, if I look to those days when I'm seeking comfort food, sometimes it is kind of a brothy, beany dish with some braised meat. But more often than not, actually, I, I find myself on a rainy day or when I'm feeling a bit glum or frankly hungover, something like a, a katsu curry is like the ultimate way to both let me kind of sink into the food, but also rev me up and stop me being moody. Do you ever get sick of cooking? Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I do really love cooking and I and if I'm sick of it, it doesn't last very long. But for example, during <laughs> during the first lockdown, we we stayed legitimately <laughs> at a house that's bigger than our flat. It didn't have a dishwasher. My son was two and a half, three, and slightly difficult. And I was a bit stressed because I was, it was the sort of first stage of getting deadlines for my book. And I was supposed to be cooking, you know, essentially a new dish every day for dishes that I couldn't actually buy the ingredients for. And I was doing all the washing up for some reason. And I think I was just at that point, it's like, right, someone get me a jack of potato. <laughs> And some baked beans, or so, someone, someone get me a ready meal yeah. because I'm done. And actually, whenever I finish a cooking project, that's pretty much the first meal as well that I that I turn to. Sort of hand hand it in, having cooked a hundred dishes three times over the last over the last half a year. It's like right, jack potato, beans and cheese, some Tabasco sauce. Thanks. Has having a child changed the way you cook or eat or think about food? Yeah, and then again, in particular in the last year when there's just so much cooking to do and other things, without we were without childcare for quite a long time, so it was really hard to try and fit work in amongst being a good parent and cooking and living. And I think I realised that the food that I cooked when I was a 30-year-old recently changed career, thinking I was a chef, a restaurant chef-style food, that I realised that that was just a bit fiddly, really. And I think I really appreciate a recipe or just a style of cooking that is without faff without unnecessary steps which can still lead to a fantastic result and food that you love but whether it's whether it's a dish that is one pot and can be served from the same dish or just something that doesn't involve multi-steps I think I'm definitely more appreciative of it it now I'm also I definitely experimental with him he eats oysters and kimchi and and lots of things he's going to be a horrific foodie hopefully (laughs) But he also, I realise, is his own person, has never touched a green leaf of any type, whether it's been pureed or is raw. And I sort of realised that there's an element of nutrition that's got to go in there and there's also that he can have bean control. And So there are lots of things that it's made me realise that my way is not the only way and actually was maybe it was wrong as well. And Ed, just to finish, we normally ask what your desert island meal would be. Is the desert island hot? It can be whatever you like it to be. <laughs> I think, bear in mind, I'm on an island, and yeah, I think it's going to be a really nice one. I think a really light starter, kind of a crudo of the fish from the sea with some olive oil and maybe a bit of citrus fruit and a herb on it. 
just to get me going. But the, the, the main course would be completely different and would probably be some of those braised butter beans that I mentioned earlier on with some braised meat and a nice kind of perky salsa on top of it just to liven it up. Finish with a batter cheesecake and some poached rhubarb. Oh, that is, a, that is a good pudding. That is a very good pudding choice. I mean, it all sounds delicious, but I'm particularly into the pudding. <laughs> it's also very trendy. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm sort of hoping that's a trend that doesn't completely fade or is actually, for anyone who's not into it, the last sort of two years, and in particular lockdown, bash cheesecakes have been horrifically overexposed in food media. But actually, it's really nice and it's a great cheesecake. Yeah, it's incredibly delicious. And it's a great cheesecake to make because you literally just stick some custard in an oven and burn it. And it's almost as good as a Sarah Lee cheesecake of the different mould. Ed, thank you so much for joining Table Talk. And Ed's book, Crave, Recipes Arranged by Flavour to Suit Your Mood and Appetite, will be published by Quadril on the 27th of May. Thank you for listening. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do subscribe. And if you've really enjoyed it, please do leave us a star rating and review. It really helps us out.